So welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Rebecca Davies. Dr. Davies is an Associate Professor and Director of Quality Central at the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Davies, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So I know one of your interests is in terms of typically referred to as good research practices for non-regulated research. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest, please? I became interested in this idea after being introduced to aspects of quality assurance through my role at the diagnostic lab. And I realized that as a scientist who had been trained in a typical PhD program that I really was not familiar with a lot of the richness that good research practices or best practices from quality assurance area could bring to our science. And and I recognized that if that was a gap in my training, it might be a current gap in the training of others as well. So Dr. Davies, can you... Uh Describe to us a little more detail what best practices are for a research environment. What I'm hoping that we might be able to do is utilize some of the best practices associated with types of procedures and processes that quality assurance systems bring to data management. And I hope that those practices could be selected based on the risk to our data. So some of the ones that I think of as places to start would be equipment management. What types of records do we have that illustrate or demonstrate that the equipment we use to generate our scientific data had proper maintenance and, if required, calibration data to show that it's operating as it should be to generate reliable data. So equipment management procedures and documentation. Another would be the simple use of standard operating procedures. Now I know in research we really need flexibility and there might be a reason to not want to capture procedure in a standard operating procedure when that flexibility is required. But if we have routine procedures, which all of us do, those should be captured in an SOP or a standard operating procedure because that helps ensure consistency whether it's if I'm working at the bench or a technician is working working at the bench or we're training a student at the bench, that that procedure is done the same way so that we're not introducing error or variability into the data we're collecting. So equipment management, standard operating procedures, training records so that again if we're not introducing variability into the data we collect by in light of the person who's performing the work. Have those folks been trained in those procedures? Are we sure that we have consistency in how they're being performed? So those three seem to me to be low-hanging fruit. And then, of course, procedure method validation and verification of methods to ensure that we can go back and trace how those methods were designed, finally approved as being fit for purpose, and then used to generate our data. So those are a few examples. Thanks for sharing that list. So let's let's spend a little more time on standard operating procedures. So I'm familiar with standard operating procedures used in industrial processes where there's a rigorous do this, then do that, Mm -hmm. and these involve preparation of the procedures and then hopefully the rigorous following of them. 
in a research environment where you're considering different options, basically what I call exploratory mm -hmm. studies, how do you advocate the uh, development of written procedures when the, you may try this once before you go on to something else. Right. So I've had the opportunity to work with research groups with on just this question. And where we try to start is, let's start with the easy things first. And if there are routine procedures, say which buffers that you're always going to use or which equipment are you always going to use, let's make sure those are captured in standard operating procedures. Then when we move into methods where they are changing every day, there is flexibility required, there is creativity required, well, that's when we might switch to talking about your notebook. What's the best way to use your notebook? And we might actually develop a standard operating procedure for how a notebook is managed in the laboratory, whether it's electronic or a, a single-use notebook. And there in that SOP, if that's the way we went, we would talk about things like how do you record source data in your notebook? How do you correct errors so that they can be traced over time? We talked together about documenting the research, whether it's an SOP or a notebook or through conversations in laboratory meetings. So if I could characterize what you're trying to accomplish, perhaps you can use the term data reproducibility. Absolutely. So it's strategies and techniques that give you reproducible data. Reproducible and reconstructable. So many times as researchers, our work progresses, and it's at a later time where we're looking at the data and we think, you know what, knowing what I know now, this piece of data doesn't quite make sense to me. And when you've gone through a lot of effort to be, make your data reconstructable, you can go back and say to yourself, well, I know it wasn't the equipment that made this data a little different. Maybe it's an outlier. Maybe it's just a new direction. I know it wasn't the training level because I can see by the form that so-and-so did this work and she was trained on the SOP. And I know it's not an error because I can clearly see when a change was made in, in this method. And so it sort of helps you separate the signal from the noise and zero in on perhaps the real biology of the system and not the variability that could come from these external problems. So I know that your focus is academic laboratories. Mm -hmm. How does this compare with practice in commercial laboratories? I have some stories that I can tell you about that. I've had the opportunity to visit some commercial laboratories, scientific institutes, to talk with scientists there that were doing discovery research based around a foundation that, that I've been working with on good research practices. And I was very interested to see because my expectation was that if you go to an institute where they're already performing research according to good manufacturing processes or good laboratory processes, I expected to find that their discovery arm would have quality bridges. And in the few places I've been, that did not occur either. So I think that same temptation to say that the QA, the quality assurance, is only necessary because it's only required in the regulatory research, and it's forgotten or not invested in discovery area. So I found that quite surprising. 
Well, speaking of investment, needless to say, anything you do costs money. And I presume that you believe and perhaps have data to show that investing in this particular mm -hmm. set of procedures actually saves money in the long run. I certainly, that's, that's my belief, and that's what I've seen in terms of being able to solve problems and avoid rework. In terms of the actual dollars and cents, I think that all of us that are proponents of quality assurance have some struggles with the actual metrics. I believe those metrics are out there, but it, like in our university setting, we definitely have had to invest in these procedures, but I don't have the numbers to show you what we've put in place that perhaps avoided problems. We don't know what we don't know, and we're not quite tracking the money yet. But my assumption, of course, is is that we're saving money. But I also really believe the investment, there needs to be some subsidy of this idea because it, it does require time and resources. And I, th I think that's the hard part for scientists. Does it come from the PI? Does it come from the institution? How do we fund these initiatives? So I've seen some indications, at least, that the National Institutes of Health are beginning to stress and perhaps advocate and maybe someday require mm -hmm. these types of quality assurance procedures for discovery research. Is that the case? Yes, I think that's true. I think we're seeing some real momentum based on the um, literature that shows we're having some problems with research reproducibility. And the NIH has taken a very strong approach in their recent requirements for grant funding. They've added some indicators of rigor. They've also committed to providing training. And they're, they're sort of tackling the study design, statistical development, Aspect Now, I have not seen the NIH or the journals who are also working on this actually identify quality assurance as a strategy. I have seen it in some of the press-published reports saying that this seems like a reasonable strategy because the whole reason for quality assurance in the regulated area is because it's been shown to provide value to data, and that's why it's required. So it seems to me a very reasonable strategy for us as scientists to voluntarily try to push through, which is where I like to advocate as a scientist for quality assurance in our programs. One of the charges and mandates of an academic enterprise is to train people to go forward and do things in other regimes, the commercial mm -hmm. world, so mm -hmm. I presume that the potential employers of your trainees or other trainees look favorably on someone who's been subjected and, and has implemented mm -hmm. these types of procedures. Absolutely, and that's truly my primary motivation for getting interested in this area, is thinking about our trainees and thinking about the bridge from academic research to industry research or regulated research, and looking back on my own experience of no exposure to quality assurance systems. And over the past few years, I've actually had the opportunity to talk with many in industry, and they've basically said flat out that they really dislike hiring new PhDs because it takes them a year and a half to train them to operate in a culture of quality assurance. 
and to not see things like standard operating procedures as too much bureaucracy or pushing back to the culture of QA type activities. And so I see that as a failure on our part as educators to our stakeholders who will be the folks hiring our students. And I see our students as being very hungry for this. When I talk to our graduate students and we discuss this issue, invariably they say, what can I do? How can I get this? Is there a certificate I can take? Help me understand how to bring this in so I can put this on my CV or show that my research was done under a quality environment. So I know you have a team of colleagues from different institutions Mm. that are working on this particular endeavor. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. There's a group of us from six to, to eight different universities. All of us are in academic environments. Several of the individuals have very strong expertise in regulatory quality. So they bring to the table what I don't have. I'm an academic who has not worked in regulatory, but they bring a lot of expertise in helping me understand what it takes to go from basic good research practices into translational medicine. So our group was formed to try to start creating some easily accessible, freely adoptable tools for scientists from an individual scientist who just wants to wrap some quality around their work to perhaps institutional educators who want to bring some tools together to create a curriculum. We came together as a result of a small grant I received from the University of Minnesota Graduate School to basically create what we're calling a toolkit. And our idea was let's bring together some templates, some SOP templates, some guidance on how to write a good SOP, some equipment management forms, More importantly, some scenarios and stories related to scientist effort that would show the value of integrating quality assurance. So I was looking for a team that could bring stories of when the equipment failure truly affected or slowed down their research, when a reagent problem resulted in a major need to rework or when a procedure that wasn't documented resulted in downstream problems because I think that's what will speak to scientists. We've created what we think are our modules. They relate to procedures, methods, equipment management. We'd like to show people how to select those tools and actually create a quality commitment that they could use in their laboratories to generate a statement that could be used in a grant request. So basically we're trying to make some simple tools that could be downloadable with guidance on how to use them to integrate some low-hanging fruit quality assurance best practices. That sounds like a very ambitious uh, undertaking. What's the schedule? We've designed what we would like. We've made our assignments. We're currently working on pulling that all together. We kind of call that phase one. Phase two is at the moment a dream, which is to take the content that we develop and actually create perhaps online training curriculum. Now phase two, that's still very much in the dream phase. The content for phase one We're hoping within the next, certainly within the next year, to have that ready, and hopefully sooner. That's a very ambitious schedule. 
It's been difficult to get it done, but we're very committed to doing it. And, and I think momentum is now so much in our favor. When we started this, we were still people who were discussing this with our research deans and our colleagues. And at least in my experience, it was still seen as something that wasn't required. There was a fair bit of pushback. Now, with the emphasis on data rigor, there's much more interest, and that momentum is carrying us is invigorating us a bit. So as you get more people involved, you get more advocates. Yes. It becomes uh, self-fueling, so to speak. Yes. Yes, we've had really good response with our Quality Central program. With the few researchers that we've been able to work with individually, it's been so rewarding because the PIs are now our strongest advocates, which is a real turnaround. That's wonderful. So Dr. Davies... uh, At the institutional level, how does one get this in the culture, so to speak? That is a question that I think about a lot because in my simple mind, which does not, of course, encapture all the complexity of an institution that has to develop and fund, find resources for all of the programs, but in my mind, quality assurance for research seems to fit best within a centralized structure, similar to the IACUC or the, the grant support or the research integrity programs that are central. I would love to see Quality Assurance becoming a centralized, supported, committed activity where researchers could have some help and support in getting these programs in place. That, I think, is the ideal. In, in every current institution that I know of that is not an opportunity for researchers. And so what we've done is try to find other ways to change the culture. And sometimes you can do that researcher by researcher, and that's what I've been trying to do at Minnesota. Try to find a couple researchers who are open and enthusiastic about that idea and work with them when they're writing their grants to actually propose quality assurance as a budget line, clearly justify what those deliverables would be, include it in the grant, and then uh, if funded, that becomes part of the research proposal. Now, we have done that with a researcher in Minnesota. He wrote two grants. We included quality assurance justification in a very strategic way, and he was funded. And interestingly, I was talking about this at an association meeting. A young man came up to me and said he was on the review committee for those grants and that they stood out in terms of their commitment to quality assurance, and that was seen favorably. So I think that is one way. Another way is to think broadly about the types of expertise in your institution. If you have strong programs in regulated research, that indicates you're going to have some strong quality assurance expertise in your institution. And while it's always difficult to broaden our scope of work, it might be a creative way to work with that person and say, could you give a couple seminars about quality assurance in general to introduce the topic, the concept, what's the difference between quality assurance and quality control? Tap on that expertise and perhaps expand the opportunities for them to impact on the discovery research arena as well. So you mentioned about adding this to, to a budget in mm-hmm. a proposal. On average, what's the range of cost, increase mm-hmm. in cost to implement this? 
I've heard 10% of a budget is not inappropriate for quality assurance in the regulated area. And I remember I, I, this is not my area of expertise. In my small projects, we've budgeted $3,000 for a year project to work with them. Now that's definitely not enough. But if you're strategic about what you're promising, that was enough for us to make progress. I think you can typically, if you want to put in an entire quality management system, which I'm not necessarily advocating for, but if you were, that's about 25% of a position in terms of added work and effort. So it, it really depends on your strategy in terms of how much it costs. So that's 25% of an FTE, yeah. but it is the percentage of the total project cost. Because that would vary with how many people on the project. Right. And I think you'd need to, again, for research, consider where the greatest risk to the data is and what things you think you could commit to. Now, now I think there should be an approach where we say we are always going to review the equipment and make sure that's managed well. We're always going to make a promise about standard operating procedures and notebook management and reagent inventory. Those procedures should be feasible in any research project, in my mind. In terms of what it would cost, it's hard for me to say. So, Dr. Davies, uh, uh, I guess there's some different aspects of this. I think I've heard you say before that uh, one of your concerns is that you could have a quality system on paper, but in practice don't have a very, at least a very effective mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Is that one of your concerns? That, that is. I think that's a real risk because myself included, our temptation is to think, I need some quality elements, and you can download templates. You can go online and download SOPs and make your inventory list and think you're done because it looks like on paper you've covered your data requirements. But whenever you have a quality system, the strength of that quality system is that you have made a commitment to what you've established as your own requirements, and those requirements are written down. And so as soon as you record those requirements and then forget about them, you're at at a much higher risk than if you had never even started. So it really has to be a commitment, and this is where I think for research, we really need to think about the project itself or the program itself and determine what are the most simple elements that would mitigate the risk. Are they sustainable? Can they be monitored? Ideally, we'd want to have some monitoring so that as scientists, we don't get lethargic and we don't make this a continuous process. And so I think those features, simple, sustainable, resources are there. The management is a strong advocate for this, and they're risk-based approaches. Very interesting. So we mentioned before your consortium that's working Mm -hmm. to help facilitate the implementation of these techniques. Uh, Is there a way that our listeners can follow this endeavor? It's a wonderful idea that we haven't considered yet. So I'll have to give that some thought. We are at the moment working as just this small group of passionate people, but we haven't got a centralized website or a blog. So I'll have to think about that. 
Do you have a suggestion? Well, certainly a website is always a possibility. Mm -hmm. But uh, are you presenting at any conferences, for example? We are presenting at the Society of Quality Assurance, which is a society I can definitely recommend to any listeners as a great place to go. They have a wonderful approach towards students. Students can join that organization for $25 a student. They have training at every meeting. I'm part of a university specialty section, and all of the consortium people I'm working with are members of the university specialty section. So if any of your listeners are interested in this topic, it would be a wonderful idea to look at the Society for Quality Assurance and join the university specialty section. We hope to work with that society to beta test some of our tools. And so that would be something I could bring back to that group and say, should we have a place where we can give updates on our work? Very, very promising. Dr. Davies, I'd like to uh, thank you for joining us today and sharing the work of you and your colleagues in terms of quality assurance in an academic environment. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. I encourage our listeners to share interest with us via the email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Until we meet again on another podcast, thank you for listening.